Hey everyone, and welcome to the Darkcast. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is DCI number 131. In this episode, I talk to E. McNeil about his new game, Aurelux Constellations. Constellations is the sequel to E's first game, Aurelux, that was released five years ago, which is a minimalist real-time strategy game that uh, reduces kind of the, the genre to its core elements uh, and strips away a lot of the, the fluff. To find out more information about Aurelux Constellations, check out darkstation.com. There you can find trailers and links in the show notes to this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. All right, well, E, thank you so much for joining us on the Darkcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad to have you on the show. Um, we had actually almost did an interview a, a couple of weeks ago, but it was uh, really short notice, and unfortunately I, I couldn't make it. So glad we were able to, to reschedule and uh, sit down and talk, because Arlux is a very interesting-looking game. Uh, it's, it's super bright and colorful. I love thank colors. <laughs> Uh, it's it's always nice when you see something that's colorful, just because you know it's so many games. I mean, they, they've gotten better, uh, but especially like mm-hmm. the last generation, everything was just gray and brown, and it's like ooh neon orange, nice. Well, you know who you can uh, who you can really give credit to for that is uh, is NASA, or arguably nature, in that like the original Orlux, mm-hmm. all those graphics were originally stolen from NASA. Really? I shouldn't say stolen. They were all public domain images. But yeah, okay. they take you know these super high resolution, really cool photos of like the sun, and um, you know to visualize different things and like different spectrums, um, they you know visualize it with with different colors. And so I took the like the blue sun and the green sun and the red sun images from NASA, and I used those as the basis for the graphics in the game. Oh wow, that's super interesting. And that's also kind of crazy that that's kind of stuff. <clears throat> that stuff is just there in nature, waiting to uh, to be used. Yet yeah, we like the really boring colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's had enough of the uh, you know gray and brown palette. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we are obviously here to talk about your new game, Orlux. Um, or Orlux? Is that how we pronounce yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Um, constellations. Uh, but before we get into the game itself, let's talk a little bit about who you are and kind of what you've done on the game, uh, kind of your background, uh, wherever you want to start from. Sure. So I'm E. McNeil. I'm a uh, indie game designer from San Diego. And um, the story with this game and the story of you know my professional life in the game industry um, starts a little over five years ago. And um, I was in college at the time. And I built, you know, I, I would always build these side project games just as a way of sort of getting practice and like building a resume and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my senior year in college, I was uh, wrapping up one of these side projects. There was this like slow, minimalistic, real-time strategy game. And I started to get the feeling that this one was actually really good. You know, this wasn't just something to throw away or just something to throw, you know, to show to my friends. Maybe this was something that I could actually try to release as a real product. And so I, uh, I built it out. I, I polished it a little more than I usually would. And um, I posted it on Reddit one day. And I said, uh, I said that it would be free for 24 hours. And this was kind of as a thanks to the, uh, the gaming subreddit because 
they had done a lot of work to help you know test the game and give me feedback along the way and on some of my earlier projects and so that actually blew up and it, it got to the top of you know the front page of reddit tons of people saw it and um, it was kind of the first time that any of my work had, had gotten any attention mm-hmm. um, so that was like the PC version of Oralux, the original Oralux. Um, one of the people who saw that, that Reddit post, happened to own a game studio in Florida. And he contacted me and said, hey, you know, your game looks cool. Would you be interested in working with us to build a mobile version? And so I ended up working with him, uh, Thomas, and his team at Wardrum Studios, and they helped build a... Um, an Android and iOS version of the game, and um, that's really where it took off. Uh, so you know, a, a little while later, Orlux came out on uh, you know tablets and iPhones and stuff like that, and uh, it got featured by Google. It blew up on Reddit again, and it kind of took off. And so that's actually that that was kind of what kickstarted my whole career. Like that that gave me. Um, enough of an income to quit my job and go indie and start working on other games. Nice. So yeah, if you fast forward a few years from that, um, Wardrum and I, uh, of course, are you know still talking and we had always batted around the idea of a sequel. We had all sorts of ideas for cool things to do with it. And um, you know, this last year we decided like, okay, it's time we you know it's time to actually build this. And so this time with uh, with Wardrum taking the lead on the engineering and doing you know, sort of solving a lot of technical problems that I wouldn't have the ability to solve myself. For instance, doing a really solid online multiplayer mode. Um, we started on this new project, worked together. This time, you know, my focus was mostly on the game design, where I helped define some of the new features and uh, build out the levels using a level editor that they created. Um, and just recently, we finished up the game. It's been released on PC on Steam. And the mobile version of Orlux Constellations is going to be coming out uh, next month. Awesome. Now, you mentioned that uh, you were kind of working on the, the original version of the original game. Uh, mm-hmm. came out uh, while you were working on your, your, or in your senior year. Uh, what were yeah. you actually getting your degree in? Computer science? Game design? What? Um, it's a real mouthful. Okay. Te- technically, my degree was... A Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science Modified with Digital Arts and Game Design. Okay, so, so you did kind of like an interdisciplinary degree sort of thing. Kind of, yeah. It was, okay. it was a, a double major. One of them was... A, mm. Game Design was actually an independent major I had to make up myself. I had to, like, combine a bunch of courses from different departments and petition the college to let me do this as a major. And then... I, I, I had to do that with my degree, so... Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, and that was great. And then I did a more traditional computer science thing. Too. Okay. I, I didn't double major. I, I mm-hmm. wasn't that uh, keen on, on staying in, in college for that long. Yeah. There were, there were definitely um, moments when I regretted going that route. But it's nice to, you know, be through with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, I went to college with a guy that double majored in, I think, uh, chemistry and biology. Or, no, chemistry and music, maybe? Wow. It was, it was weird. That, that dude was crazy. That's pretty cool, um, though. It, it was cool, but he was crazy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's it's been a couple of years since then. What uh, what's the interim been like? I, I know that you've made a couple of other games, but kind of what's the the between Oraluxes been? 
like? So, um, I, I, you know, took some time before the uh, the mobile version of Oralux came out, and I graduated, and I got a job, and things like that. Um, since I went indie, I've been doing some work in virtual reality, and so I have a couple of games that have come out for, like, the uh, Samsung Gear VR headset, and okay. um, one game that's on the Oculus Rift. And so, um, you know, that that's kind of been... Um, the majority of my time in between, uh, you know, Orlux One and Orlux Two. Um, Very cool. S- yeah. Since you've actually had some time with the the different devices, how do you feel about uh, the various VR headsets? I feel good about them. They're all pretty solid. I mean, the only thing that I uh, kind of poo poo is uh, is Google Car- uh, Google Cardboard. Sure. Have you ever used one of those? I have. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of I mean, that's for, not at a level of quality that no. I would actually use, but to be no, fair, no, for eleven dollars or whatever it is, yeah. you know, it's it gives you an idea. Yeah, it doesn't a, a pretend vague, to be anything more. Than not, it is. not not a good idea, but it gives you an idea of VR. <laughs> so, um, you know, most of my stuff recently has been um, kind of finding its primary primary audience on the Gear VR, which is like the Samsung and Oculus collaboration where mm-hmm. you, you plug in a Samsung phone and um, you know along those lines I'm excited about Google's next offering daydream but that's not coming out for a while sure. and you know the the rift and the Vive and um, PlayStation VR those are all very solid awesome is there just out of curiosity uh, is there any way that Aralux could be a VR game could do you foresee that is Maybe. that something you would even want to I mean, we, we've thought about it, and okay. um, it would be something that would be fun to play with. I have sort of a, a general idea of how that might work. Okay. Um, but, you know, it would also, it would have to, uh, to change a fair amount as well. Um, you know, like the, the levels in Orlux are very much built on sort of a 2D plane. It's kind of a uh, 2D logic underneath. And so um, making that in VR would be possible, but... If, you, if you're going to do a VR game, you want it to really take advantage of VR. And so my instinct would be to try to, you know, build something that actually makes use of the, uh, you know, three-dimensional space mm-hmm. that you can play in. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I guess we should actually talk about Aralux then and what it is and how it kind of works with the two-dimensional space. So to start off, give us the, uh, the extended elevator pitch. Um, okay. This is a this is a Mass Effect elevator, if you will. Um, oh right, <laughs> I get that. Um, okay, so Orlux is an ultra minimalistic real time strategy game. Basically, it was originally inspired by the classic RTS games that I grew up on, like Age of Empires and Command and Conquer. Except there was always a lot about those games that I didn't like, and. I wasn't too interested in, you know, resource collection. I wasn't too interested in picking out what kinds of units I wanted to build. I definitely wasn't interested in, like, build orders and actions per minute and things like that. Micro just completely turned me off. Okay. So Oralux was an attempt to build an RTS that stripped it down to just the parts that I loved, just the stuff that really, you know, made me fall in love with that genre. And so it's extremely simple. You start out with a planet, and every beat to the music, about every second or so, it creates a single unit, like a soldier, which is just sort of a a spark of light floating in space. Hmm. And so you collect those over time, and you can order them around 
to other planets and colonize them. And then once you colonize them, then those other planets will start creating units as well. In some cases, you can upgrade a planet so it becomes twice as big and starts producing two units every beat. And then there are enemies who are doing the same thing and, uh, you know, sort of building up forces, expanding and colonizing. And whenever your units meet one of their units, they, you know, explode. They mutually annihilate each other. And that's essentially representing combat. It, there's no, like, you know, extended fight. There's no rock, paper, scissors mechanic. It's just who has more troops. And okay. so, so... So one troop always... Or two troops coming together always kill each other. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's, so in that sense, you know, the battles are, are just a matter of math. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple other important twists to this. One of them is the game moves relatively slowly. Um, in Orlok's Constellations, you can actually adjust the speed of the game in the middle of a match, um, you know, to whatever your comfort level is. But by default, things are moving at, at a relatively steady, slow pace. And so you're never really getting the jump on the other guy. It's never about surprise attacks. And there's no fog of war. You can always see the whole battlefield at once. And so what happens is um, the game sort of generally tends toward um, a stalemate. And, and also, like, the maps tend to be very symmetrical, too, which accentuates this. Mm. It creates this situation where you can't just steamroll the other guy. You can't just start winning from the beginning and, you know, and crush them. You have to figure out some way to break the stalemate some way to sort of figure out a clever solution, some way of allocating your resources and maneuvering your troops so that um, often, you know, you're, you're encouraging the enemies to fight each other or something like that. Or you can um, go around them and attack from behind. Um, and, you know, there, there's various sort of ways to gain an advantage, but it's always about clever strategy. It's never about reaction times. It's never about... Um, you know, micromanagement or anything like that. Uh, it's it's about outwitting the other guy, and that's to me what what's exciting about real time strategy games. Mm -hmm. So now, how how do you go about using wits in a game where it comes down to you know you've got two units when they impact each other they they both die. Obviously, you mentioned like luring enemies to fight each other. Um, how, how does how does kind of going around and circumventing your enemy affect it? Can you attack a planet without actually attacking the planet's units? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so if, if you send all your guys to the left uh, and I send my guys to the right, then I can attack your planets on the right and they'll be undefended. Gotcha. And so okay. that's, like a, that's a really common sort of way of getting an advantage. If I destroy your planets, you know, you can recolonize, but... Um, you've lost some production in the meantime. You've sort of, you've fallen behind, you know? Um, and then there's also, you know, some of the game in single player is about sort of tricking the, the AI. And so the AI is pretty smart, but um, not as smart as most humans. And so often if you, if you can maneuver things so that, you know, you're sort of making trades with the opponents, you're putting yourself into a particular position, if you can get it so that um, you're on the outside and one of the enemies is sort of sandwiched in the middle often that's a, a great way to sort of gain an advantage because okay. um, you know you're sort of in a situation where um, you can you know whenever the enemies fight you can swoop in and you know clean up and like colonize whatever they've destroyed 
um, you know, fill the void that they're leaving. And, um, and whoever's in the middle has to sort of split their resources and can't, um, you know, can't uh, maintain a, de- you know, a defense for very long. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, though, all of these like, strategies that I'm describing, none of them are sort of formalized in the game. These are all just sort of things you can figure out or sort of patterns you recognize. Most of the moment-to-moment gameplay is just seeing, like, you know, I need troops here to defend, or they're attacking over there, so that means this other spot is weakened. Um, it tends, because it's a real-time game, even though it's moving slowly, you're sort of re, you know, reconsidering, you know, analyzing the game and, you know, the, the state that it's in all the time. And it's constantly flowing, constantly changing. Um, and, and, you know, new units are being constantly produced, too. So it's not, um, it's never very static. You know, you, you often start out in a stalemate, but it's never a, um, it's never a stable equilibrium, if you understand what I mean. Sure. It, there's always room for dynamics. Anything can make anything change. It, yeah. Nothing remains. Not, it's not zero-sum, I guess. Be one way. Anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, is there uh, my uh, my co-hosts who uh, could not make it tonight would be remiss if I did not ask the next question. Um, what's the lore behind the Sparks of Light? Are are these spaceships? <laughs> are these people? Is this like Solar Jetman going out there and attacking people? What's what's going on? Why why are we attacking the other planets? Is it just for universal right. domination or? So the original Oralux was deliberately abstract. Okay. Um, you know, it, it entirely sidestepped this question. It, it didn't even have uh, text in the game, aside from a couple of hints telling you, you know, how to play at the very beginning. So were um, they technically even planets that you were starting with? We actually, we called them suns the first okay. time around. And that's All just right. because I was using the image of the sun stolen from NASA. Um, the reason they're called planets this time around is because every player called them a planet. And so we just decided to roll with that. Okay. Um, so regarding lore, though, um, one of my favorite things that came from the very first release of Orlux um, is somebody wrote a piece of fan fiction for it, which is a little ridiculous because it's literally just like points <laughs> of light floating in space. But their interpretation was these are like starfighters in a big fleet and they're all, you know... The, the red civilization is fighting the green civilization and things like that um, and wrote this whole like battle scene essentially um, I should dig that up but yeah that's the closest thing you know we, we don't have an official story but I guess that's like the unofficial lore of the game okay that works that's mm-hmm. good <laughs> now you mentioned that uh, that the game kind of uh, goes at a very slow pace uh, and that it's actually pulsing to music. Uh, is that the type of game that you can actually change the soundtrack and so those pulses vary depending on what music is playing or is there a, a set soundtrack? Um, it actually works kind of the other way around. So rather than okay. the, um, the beat changing to the music, um, the music is actually adapting to the events in the game. So there, there's a set soundtrack but it's all uh, sort of dynamic. We have... Um, different sort of stems of music and, uh, you know, different measures that will play out. And as, you know, as battles start, the music will get a little more intense. In, uh, you know, if you start winning, then the music, or, you know, winning or losing, the music will change to accommodate that. And 
the music is all set to the beat of the game. And so you can sort of look and see everything in the game pulsing uh, to you know, the actual beat of the music. Um, it's kind of interesting with that, that happened almost by accident with Orlux 1 because I went online and I found um, an album of free music where every single song was exactly 120 beats per minute. Okay. And it was like the perfect music you know, for this game. It was kind of this light ambient sound. And um, I, you know, I kind of built the game around that. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Now I can have everything happen to the beat. So for Orlux 2, we actually went and we found the, uh, the composer who posted that free album you know, five or however many years ago and worked with him again. And it turns out he's uh, you know, this guy in Russia who is uh, you know, a little younger than me and just did music in his free time. And um, you know, we were thrilled to find him, and he was thrilled to make more music for this game. So we yeah. got you know, this time around, it's, it's similar music, but it's actually custom-built for the game. Okay, and so it's constantly changing as as things are getting crazier. That actually allows for things to get even crazier because as things get crazier, units are being produced faster and, and whatnot. Is that correct? Well, the music doesn't increase in pace. Okay, um, gotcha. it does. It doesn't like add this sort of feedback loop. It's okay. more um, it's more like reacting to the events in the game. It's uh, it's designed to sort of accompany it properly where you have more active music when there's more action happening on the mm. board. But it's not actually changing speed. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, is it getting any more complex or, or new kind of instruments and things being yeah. added to it? Or okay. Yeah, that, that's probably the right way to think about it, where like um, new elements, new, you know, new instruments sort of come in um, depending on you know, how much action is taking place. Okay. Very cool. Um, now, as you are up upgrading your planets and whatnot, what kind of options do we have? Tech trees? What's how, how does you mentioned that there's not like resource uh, gathering in the game? So how how do upgrades work? So um, in the original Orlux, the, this was one of the very few sort of extra mechanics that existed. Um, it's nothing nothing like a tech tree or anything like that. Basically, you know, you're constantly producing units. You can invest 100 units into a planet to upgrade it, um, and only certain planets. They sort of have rings around them that indicates the maximum number of times each one can be upgraded. And so, you know, the if you wait like 100 beats, you will have enough units to upgrade your sun, and then it'll be producing twice as fast. And that's that's all there is to it in terms of upgrading. Okay. Um, so in Orlux Constellations, one thing that's I, I really need to uh, to mention, um, you know, in Orlux One, it was this very simple set of mechanics, and that was kind of the what made the game great. That's what got it this you know amazing reception. Um, but there's also like everybody had a ton of ideas for ways to add complexity and ways to sort of twist the game so that it would be really cool and like fresh again. And so for Orlux Constellations, um, we didn't want to ruin the what made the game great, which is like the simplicity, right? So, but we still wanted to explore new territory. So the solution that we came up with is right in the title, the, the Constellations, where there are um, 10 or so constellations of levels, which are just sort of a set of about a dozen um, levels, you know, different maps that you can play. And in each constellation, 
there is one special mechanic, one new thing that um, is added to the game. And it's not cumulative where it, you know, it gets more and more complex. It's like each constellation just has this one twist, and that's all you have to, you know, to worry about. Okay. So, for example, um, probably the simplest one is in one of the constellations, the planets will move around in these sort of orbiting paths, and so the levels are sort of constantly shifting. In another one, there's like terrain where um, if you know if your units are moving over some parts of the map, they'll go twice as fast, and other parts of the map, they'll go you know twice as slow as usual. Um, in another constellation, there are these supernova uh, objects that are floating in the map, where if you invest a bunch of units into them, um, they will explode, and that takes out all of the enemy units on the map and gives you a bit of a bonus as well. And so it's kind of this like common uh, goal where everyone's trying to capture that before anybody else does. Mm. And so for each constellation, um, it, it kind of it changes the strategy. It, it makes you have to think about this very simple system in a very different way. So even if you've sort of mastered like the basics, if you're you know, somebody who played a lot of Orlux 1, um, this kind of makes that all obsolete in a way. It, it makes you have to, to think about it differently. Sure, sure. So those aren't... So is there a, is there a campaign to the game, or is are constellations kind of just a additional modes to I'm not even sure the the best way right. to describe it is is there a main game and constellations are an add-on or are is constellations pretty much just variants on the original gameplay um does that make sense yeah so i i guess the way to think about it would be um the game is very decentralized like the game is you know, there's no like set campaign. Okay. There's there's well over a hundred levels. There, I think it's somewhere around 150 or maybe 200 levels in the game. Um, and they're divided by constellation. So the 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 first constellation, the one that you'd sort of, you know, be deposited in by default when you first boot up the game, mm-hmm. is just sort of the vanilla game. There's there's no twists. It's just like Orlux one. And that's you know sort of where you get your bearings and you learn the basic mechanics. Okay. But you can there's there's no reason you have to start there. There's no reason you have to stay there until you beat everything. You can move to any of the constellations at any time you choose. And in each one, there's a starting uh, sort of introductory level that's relatively easy and that sort of gives you an idea of how it works and kind of gives you like a nice playground to figure out the mechanic. And then you get. Uh, you know, that unlocks like three uh, normal difficulty levels, and if you beat you know any one of those, it'll unlock a hard difficulty level, and if you beat that, it'll unlock an insane difficulty level. And so, you're kind of um, it's decentralized in that you can you know play on any of the constellations that you want. You can experiment with any of those mechanics um, whenever you feel like it, but you uh, in in each constellation individually. There's kind of this um, this ramp of difficulty that you have to climb, okay. And it gets you know the the original Orlux also had a reputation of being quite difficult, and that is definitely carried over into Orlux constellations where, um, you know, it's sort of like you you start out with a level where maybe you have an advantage, then you move on to several levels where it's it's pretty fair but challenging, and then at the end there are some levels where it's really stacked against you and you have to uh, 
you know, sort of gain an expertise if you're going to beat it. Okay, gotcha. Makes sense. Uh, now, this the the new game uh, Constellations also adds multiplayer to the mix yeah. as well. Uh, can can multiplayer be played in the various constellations, or is it? Um, so multiplayer has specialized maps. Okay. Um, and so you know, one thing that we did is you know some of the maps in Orlux uh, are are not fair for the starting player. They'll start you out in the middle or something like that if it's like an insane difficulty level. And we wanted to make sure you know that would suck in multiplayer. So sure. all of the multiplayer maps are strictly symmetrical and very fair. And then. Um, Every multiplayer map has a two-player version, a three-player version, and a four-player version. And you can populate that with, uh, with AIs if you want to play on one of the larger maps, but you don't have enough people playing at one time. Um, and so what we decided to do was we built um, a multi two multiplayer maps for every different constellation, for every different like new mechanic or twist. So there's two multiplayer maps that include the supernovas. There's two multiplayer maps that include the orbiting planets, and so on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And that's also, <clears throat> excuse me, that's uh, playable in local uh, multiplayer as well as online. That's right. right. Yep. Okay. Now, obviously, uh, you know, making the the map uh, symmetrical goes a long way to to balancing kind of gameplay, and I guess. You know, with with the game being a much more simplified, uh, re- reductive version of kind of a tradition, or not actually, I guess this would be the most traditional RTS. <laughs> well, <laughs> in no, a way, I, I think I think um, I think traditional is a lot more complicated. Okay. You know, um, this is kind of the the most bare bones, or sort of the uh, the common core to all of them. Okay, but uh, you know, traditionally, yeah, there's you know tech trees and resource collection, sure. a lot more com- complexity. Uh, but when it comes to multiplayer, how do you go about balancing uh, a game like this that is uh, one, you know, relatively slow moving and also just I'm always fascinated by strategy games that have multiplayer in them because I feel like that's just a way bigger task of of making that fun than, you know, a game where two people are shooting each other or <laughs> racing or something like that. Uh, right. So how did you go about balancing it and and all that um well it's it's actually kind of interesting to see how it plays out um the game uh you can play with two players where it's just you know head on head me versus you and in that case if you're playing against an ai um it's kind of about outsmarting the ai if you're playing against a human we don't have the same kinds of flaws right we we can detect more easily sort of what tricks you're up to. And so um, those games tend towards uh, you know a much more even fight uh, right off the bat. Um, and that can be interesting, but the game really shines once you start playing with three or four people. And what's interesting about that is um, you end up with this really like interesting kind of game theory situation where everybody needs to like hold their own territory and like try to gain an advantage but you don't want to be the person who strikes first or you don't want to be the you know fighting with you know your neighbor because then the third player can swoop in and you know clean up hmm. and so um, it creates this really interesting like diplomatic impasse 
Um, and it, that's not to say that nothing's happening because people tend to actually be very aggressive and you're constantly like poking at your neighbors and trying to make them make mistakes. But um, you often have a situation where one player is starting to gain an advantage and starting to like really gain momentum and then the other two players will form a, like a, a truce, sort of impromptu, mm-hmm. and, um, and turn against them and try to you know, achieve balance again. And so, you know, that you would you would think playing that out in your head that no one ever wins. That's not actually what happens. We I've played a, a bunch of Oralux multiplayer at this point, and it's just a ton of fun, and it's it's very winnable, um, and it's it's so much about like mind games and. Um, you know, having a good sense of like where the game is going, who's attacking who, who's paying attention at different times, um, and kind of thinking a few steps ahead of your enemies. Uh, so I, I'm proud to say, you know, as I guess I, sh- you know, I can't really brag because I'm the guy who originally made the game, um, <laughs> but I uh, I have a pretty good win rate on multiplayer, and I take great pride in that because um, it's not just it's not just that I like. Have you know? I can click faster than other people, or I've mastered the tech trees, or something like that. Um, it's like a social game, mm-hmm. in a weird way. You know, once once you take away all of these um, sort of what I see as like extraneous elements of RTS games, it's um, it's about diplomacy. It's about like allocation of resources, um, you know, against different people, yeah. um, and it it plays out really interestingly. And we include some uh, you know a text chat. Which um, can get pretty heated at times. We found. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you were first describing kind of the uh, the starting stalemate kind mm-hmm. of uh, idea of the game or the the way it traditionally um, pans out, it actually it made me think of like th- this sounds like the game version of the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, yeah. You know, where you've got two people in a, a different room and one is told that the others ratted him out so do you rat that person out or you know if it, all that kind of stuff it's just like who moves first who um and you know who moves first who who stays back and well, it sounds, it sounds really interesting I, I'm actually really fascinated by like the famous dilemmas of game theory mm-hmm. and there's actually um, you know I, I can talk about how another famous dilemma or famous sort of game theory thought experiment directly led to uh, one of the features in the game, if you'd like to hear that story. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so um, the what I, the thing I'm referring to is called a dollar auction. And so here's the thought experiment. Um, let's say somebody has announced that they are going to auction off a $100 bill. Okay? So you might be able to buy this $100 bill for $1, right? And you'd make good money off that. Mm-hmm. So they say... They're going to run an auction, but there's a twist. And that twist is whoever bids the second highest amount also has to pay, but they don't get the dollar. They don't get the $100. So then the auction starts. And let's say I put in a bid for $1 because, hey, I could get like, you know, $100 for free. Um, and then you think the same thing and you bid $2, right? And so we, we probably we bid up and up. And it makes sense to buy the $100 for up to, like, $99. But we get to that point. I bid $99. But you have just bid, eight, you know, 98 before me. And you, because the second place bid also has to pay, you don't want to lose that 98 right? 
So it makes sense for you to bid 100 just to not lose. But now mm -hmm. I'm in the same situation, so I might bid 101. And we keep on going. Like we, keep, we actually get to a point where because we sort of like got into it slowly and we're both on the hook for our bids, we might bid well over $100. We might be, you know, bid well into the point where it doesn't make sense. If we knew what we were getting into, we would have never done it. Um, but it's a sunk cost, you know, because we're, we're, we're both on the hook. So we'll keep on putting more and more money into it. So that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, and what I did with that is I created a feature for one of the constellations that we call white holes. And so the way these work is um, you can invest units into it just like you would when you're upgrading. Uh, you know, you take some of the units you've, you've accumulated, you tell them, you know, you order them to go to the white hole and they sort of get absorbed by it and that kind of um, adds to a counter. And um, if it reaches a certain threshold, if you put enough units into it, it will trigger, and what happens is it'll, um, it'll spit out a ton more units than you put into it. You might invest you know, 300 and it'll spit out 600 or something like that. So it's a, a really good bonus. So the thing is, if my opponent puts units into it, then that will subtract from the ones that, you know, the, that I've invested into it and sort of bring it back down to zero. Um, so you end up with this situation where maybe two players are, uh, are both trying to get this bonus because there's only one white hole and it can only trigger once. And so, you know, we think, we each think we're going to get a good deal out of it. We each think that, oh, well, I'll put in my 300 and I'll get this big bonus of 600. But what ends up happening is just to stop the other person from triggering it, we'll invest our whole army. We'll invest everything we have. We'll put in thousands of units because we just we can't afford to lose. We can't afford to, to not get anything out of it, and we can't afford to let the other guy win. And then if you're unlucky, there's a third player who has not been participating in any of this, who has been building up units this entire time, who can clean up. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, in practice, it, uh, it gets more complicated than that. It actually sure. can turn into like sort of a game of chicken where, uh, you know, another game theory concept where like me and my opponent are both gunning for the white hole. We're both investing units, but we both know how this is going to end, which is if we both keep doing this, then we're both going to die. And so one of us might blink and retreat and take all our units back and just let the other guy have it and hope that you know, the dynamics of like having one or two other players in the game is going to end up balancing things out. Um, but, you know, that's a risk, and it's like an interesting decision to, to figure out what to do, you know, in real time under pressure. That is fascinating. It's cooler in-game. In you, know, <laughs> you gotta play it. Uh, that, that, is, that is really cool. Um... So I guess kind of uh, coming out of that a little bit, you you already mentioned some of the various uh, kind of uh, variants on the core gameplay with the different constellations. Can you talk about some of the other uh, options that you have and how they affect the game? Yeah, so uh, some of the other constellations. Mm -hmm. um, so there's one called Wormholes, um, and those are essentially points on the map where you uh, you can teleport units from one to another. And so that's interesting because it sort of allows you to take shortcuts or maybe it sort of gives a backdoor where you can attack, you know, the, an enemy's um, strong points when they don't expect it. Okay. Um, 
there's one called gamma rays, which uh, they're essentially these lines through the level, and every 30 seconds, this giant, uh, or you know, depending on what speed you have the game at, maybe every minute, maybe every two minutes, this big blast comes through and destroys every planet that sits on that that line on that path, and so that creates this interesting decision where, um, you know, you uh, it makes sense. It's like useful to to colonize one of those planets um, early, like or immediately after a uh, one of the gamma rays has come through, because that'll have time to sort of build up a bunch of units in the meantime uh, before the next one comes. But the value of colonizing one of those planets is constantly decreasing, you know, mm. um, as as the gamma ray comes closer and closer. Um, another one is called a shockwave where it's essentially like a giant line of destruction that very slowly moves across the map. Um, and sometimes it's like a giant circle that's coming and crushing everything in, inwards. Um, but what it does is it destroys every unit that it touches. And so the, the dynamic there is um, as you see this shockwave slowly approaching, you realize that you can't play defense anymore. You can't stay stationary on your sons or I'm sorry, on your planets, um, because those units would just be wasted if they get hit by the shockwave. Mm. So it encourages aggression. Um, it encourages you to like use it or lose it. And it encourages aggression in a particular direction based on where the, the shockwave is going. And so that creates these really interesting um, you know, forced battles and like uh, choke points and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, is is there a, a safe area on the map, or is at some point the shockwave going to kind of cross the entire map and everything dies? Uh, the shockwave will cross the entire map and everything dies, but okay. it's it's pretty narrow. It's it's pretty much like a single line. So what often ends up happening is, um, you know, the shockwave will will cross over a planet, and it does not destroy the planet itself. The planet is going to keep producing units, and so once the shockwave has passed. That planet is now safe and actually okay. kind of has an advantage because it has a moment to um, to build up more troops before mm-hmm. you know the the stuff on the other side of the shockwave can attack it. Gotcha. Um, and so that actually comes into uh, into play really heavily in figuring out the the good strategies for those levels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you there, said there are, are others some more here. Okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a uh, there's forced terrain which is. Um, terrain that uh, that pushes all the units that move over it in a certain direction. And so that's sometimes useful for creating these shortcuts where like I can go from point A to point B very quickly because there's forced terrain in that direction but I can't go back in the other way, direction. Um, and it also creates sort of uh, one-way walls where um, you know I can attack you you know really easily because there's like forced terrain you know between us but you can't attack me. And so you can do really interesting things like that, like create a level where there's kind of a cycle where, you know, everyone can attack the player that's counterclockwise to them, but is vulnerable to the player that's, you know, on the clockwise direction. Um, there's another one that uh, we call minefields, and that's terrain that um, when units are crossing over it, every beat there is a particular chance that that unit will be destroyed. And so the effect there is... Um, crossing over, you know, certain paths or certain areas uh, will destroy, like, a certain proportion of your army. And so you have to, to judge, like, is it worth it to, um, 
to try to like you know take this route because it's quicker, or should I try to take the long way around, or um, you know maybe there's a planet that's completely surrounded by this terrain, and so that makes it harder to colonize but easier to hold, um, and that makes it for an interesting choice. Sure. Um, there's another one that's Fog of War, which essentially you know that was a, a common RTS mechanic that was very purposefully removed from the original Oralux and then reintroduced as one of the constellations in Oralux 2. So with Fog of War, you can only see what's going on within a certain radius of the planets you control. And so um, you sort of have to, uh, first of all, try to figure out what's happening and who's, you know, uh, who's winning elsewhere in the level, um, just sort of by inference. But then also, um, it makes centrally placed planets more valuable because those can act as a sort of lighthouse that like lets you see the rest of the level and have a better perspective, have more information than any of the other players if you're the one that's holding it. Um, yeah, and there's you know there's all sorts of levels that are built around concepts like that. Nice. Very cool. All right. Well, I think, I think that I may does have it. mentioned all of them. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a good time to uh, to go into the final section, uh, the end game. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as we mentioned before, this is um, yeah, this is more for fun. This doesn't reflect uh, you know the studio or the, the game in any way. These are these are just your opinions on things. Uh, and, and the very first one is who is your favorite video game protagonist? Who's your favorite video game hero? Okay, do you remember that time that uh, Time Magazine made? you the person of the year and put a mirror on their uh, cover? I don't know. Well, I think it was like 2005 or something. Okay. Um, that happened. I think I'm going to try to do one of those answers, and I'm going to say my favorite protagonist is in games where I get to invent my own protagonist. Okay. Um, so, you know, my favorite game of all time, I don't know if I'm, I'm a- accidentally answering a future question with this, um, my favorite game of all time was uh, Morrowind, the Elder Scrolls III Morrowind. Mm. And um, probably like a quarter of all the time I spent in that game was spent in the character creator. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, I, I go nuts for that kind of thing. I, I have all sorts of like high concepts for cool characters, and sure. I'll spend forever making them, and then often I won't spend any time actually playing them. I uh I only gave Morrowind never one I only gave it one shot, and <laughs> I was playing it on a friend's Xbox, and I spent a good forty five minutes to an hour. It was the first type of game I'd ever <laughs> played like that, and I uh, created this like bald bearded orc guy. Nice. And um, I, I go out from like the slave ship, and I go into this lighthouse that's like right across the building that you first walk through. I, I know that lighthouse so well. And I stole the contents of the basket at the bottom of that lighthouse, and the mm-hmm. next thing I know, I was being punched uh, <laughs> by a blue elf, and I died. Yep. I, I and I not exactly saved at any point. Scene. I not saved at any point, so <laughs> I had to recreate the character all oh, over again. No. And I said no. <laughs> I think I think in a later patch for the PC version, they added an auto save when you left the. Uh, the census and excise office that would have been so great yeah <laughs> no i i played that game so much i i essentially memorized like the best way to go through that opening town where like there's a bunch of like sort of introductory quests and stuff mm-hmm. i figured out like the best way to go through it so you came out with the most money and you you know you you got a bunch of good weapons 
and you could you could goad different characters into fighting you for different reasons, and that was always a good thing because then you could kill them and take their stuff right without them <laughs> punching you and calling the guards. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I played a lot. Very nice. Excellent. Excellent. I uh, I love games where you get to create stuff. It's always weird though when there's kind of a really good looking default option. Yeah, like and you don't want to go Effect, away from it. Yeah. Like I, I always went with when I played as a, a male shepherd. I always went with default shepherd because like all the other guys just don't look as cool as default <laughs> shepherd. I, I also <laughs> played default male shepherd, but I have seen some YouTube videos of people who just tried to make the ugliest possible shepherd. Oh, those are those are great. It's hilarious. Those are fantastic. Yeah. Um, it, I was it, I was kind of disappointed in Mass Effect 3 though when they gave a default female shepherd because I had worked a long time on my female shepherd mm-hmm. and so when I imported into 3 and you know now it's like oh this is the default I was like that's not shepherd right that's, no that's not what she looks like don't force this upon me I, I wish I had played as uh, the female shepherd because I've heard the voice acting is really good oh she's she's fantastic yeah Jennifer um, Hale I think yep yeah she does a great job. I, I love uh, Male Shepard in that game. He, he mm-hmm. does a good job, but yeah, no, Fem Shep is, is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, Someday I'm so. going to replay those games. I always I play Bioware games with like, the first time through I am a total goody two-shoes. You know, sure. usually I'm like just like a soldier class or something like that. And then, for some, like for Knights of the Old Republic, I'll play a second time as a female as whatever the opposite of a soldier is, usually like some sort of spellcaster type, mm. and completely evil, like 100% evil, just so I can see what all that content looks like. So I can never do that. One day I'm going to have to go through and play like the Renegade Mass Effect see, series. I have a problem with Renegade uh, Shepard in Mass Effect because you're not really... You're not really evil. It's not like when you grow yeah. horns in Fable and you're, you know, kicking people and whatnot. You're you're just kind of a dick. Yeah. Um so I I really despised Renegade Shepherd, so I actually had to come up with this whole morality system of why um like why I could do renegade moments sometimes and paragon moments other times. Mm-hmm. Um and so both of my main characters that I played through the the series with, they were they were opposites of each other, but they were both like half renegade, half paragon. It was that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, that, it took it took way too much thought process. Right. Yeah, I mean, and the common criticism of those kinds of systems is um, some content is locked off unless you are sufficiently paragon or sufficiently renegade. Yeah. And you'd like to think yeah. that everyone would play like you and sort of like have a consistent value system, but the game kind of the mechanics encourage people to just play it straight one way or the they, other. They do. They do. Yeah. And there's uh there's some stuff I, I missed out on I think in 3 mm-hmm. um that but anyway, that's that's not what we're here to talk. We're we're here to talk <laughs> about you. And the next question um is uh flipping that so who's your favorite antagonist? Who's your favorite bad guy? And you can't say yourself. Yeah, okay, I won't say myself. Um, I should have said, like, Darth Revan from KOTOR. Because that's actually yourself. That, that would Spoilers. be pretty good. Um, okay. Uh, man, there's a lot of actually good choices here. Um, hmm... I am, I am pretty partial... Uh, e- even though like the plot in Morrowind is kind of weak, I think the world building is really spectacular. 
So um, I'm going to go with the villain from Morrowind, Dagoth Ur. Um, but with the understanding that you have to include like all the books and like in game and all like the the crazy lore that surrounds him that really like fleshes out who he is instead of just sure. like, a weird guy wearing a mask at the end of the game. Because I think that's what most people's impression of him is. Right. Right. Yeah. That works. He's like uh, he's like this awesome fallen hero who became a god, and is like, I don't know, the only honest god in the story, as opposed to the good guys who were like criminals. Nice. Well, you can always trust a dishonest person to be dishonest. I've heard it said. Hmm. Um, I think that was from Pirates of the Caribbean. Anyway, um, so uh, going in a different direction, uh, what is a trend that is going on in video games today that you really like and want to see more of? Hmm. Let's see. Um, I feel like I, I'm never really on top of trends until they're like a few years old. That's you know? okay. It can be a, a trend that you want to come yeah. back. That's, well, that's you know fine. what? I'll, um, <laughs> I think I'm going to go with the, the easy answer for me, which is virtual reality. Okay. Um, that, you know, that has become, like, a big thing. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly, like, getting a lot of mind share, um, you know, and especially among, like, the developer crowd. And uh, I think that it has a lot of promise. Like, I've, uh, you know, of course, because I'm, you know, making games for it. Um, but I, I would like to see VR succeed. I think there's some possibility still of it just sort of never really catching on, losing momentum. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see that happen. I think, uh, I think it has the potential to, uh, to get big, and I'd like to see that. Awesome. Now, again, flipping that coin, are there any tropes that are out there that you really don't like and would wish they'd just go away? Um, I saw this one coming. Let's see. Does it make it any easier? No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, I think um, this is not something that's new, but um, I'd say like really long games or games that require a ton of time. Hmm. Um, and th- you know, this is one of those cases where I think the games aren't changing so much as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like there's a bunch of games. That sound really good and like really something that I could I'd love to to get into, but I approach them and they demand too much of me, um, in terms of like time and effort. Um, what what is what is a lot of time to you? Because I I'm always interested. Like every now and then I'll I'll talk to a, a coworker of mine who will say something about an a, you know xrpg and it's just it's too short and I'm like well how long was it? It was sixty hours. It's like well yeah. wait a minute what? It's too short. Like that's. I mean, that's a pretty long game to me. So mm-hmm. what? What is? What is it? Well, what let, is let a me game that let me give a, too much time. Let me give a disclaimer first. Okay. Which is, um, you know, I played like I've played three hundred hours of multiple different games. You know, um, mm-hmm. but they tend to be games where they did not. Those games did not demand that of me. You know, like uh, okay. Civilization Two, I've played incredible amounts of, but no individual game of Civ Two. Um, you know, was was incredibly long. I mean, they were pretty long, but they were not, you know, dozens of hours or anything. Sure. Um, and each one was individually satisfying, and I could stop after that and be, you know, feel like I got a full experience. Um, 
I think I've played over 60 hours of Rocket League at this point, but every match is five minutes long. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm coming back because I enjoy it, and it's not like the game is, is saying, like, you know, just wait a little while longer and then it'll get good. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you'll have a complete experience. So if it's something where it's like there's a campaign or, like, there's a story and you have to get through, you know, just like that to feel like you've actually experienced the game, then I'd say, like... Anything beyond 20 hours seems long to me. Okay. Yeah, too long, I That's mean. Sure. You know, sure. be beyond 10 hours seems long. Sure. I, I feel like uh, for a lot of games, even the kind of big epic RPGs, um, in a lot of ways, 20 hours would actually be a really nice sweet spot uh, mm -hmm. for them just because... You know that I don't know. Sometimes things can get boring. Um, yeah, I, I actually several years ago when the uh, the Kingdoms of Amalur game came out right. uh, from Thirty Eight Studios. Yeah, right. like that game. That game would have been great if it was ten to fifteen hours long, mm -hmm. but it was like forty hours long. And while the combat was sufficient for a ten to fifteen hour long game. When you do the same, when you're doing a button mashy kind of game for 60 hours, it just like you just want to start hitting your head against the table. It's like when yeah. will this be over? <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I I feel like some of those games um, they do well in part because they're all they're, they're multiple games in one. Like you know, mm -hmm. you get a little bored of the uh, you know the dialogue and the story, and so you're going to spend an hour going through combat encounters, and it's really sure. like a tactics game for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and that works. You know, it's it's hard to complain about that when I've had so much fun with it. But True. as as a designer, what what I'm really excited by are games that are um, are very focused, and that reflects mm -hmm. itself more than any other game I've made in Orlux, where it's like, yeah, you know, this was trying to be ultra minimalistic, and it's like this is the part I liked about these games, and so that's all that's going to be in this game. And sure. uh, you know, it's it's not going to um, to teach you, you know, to spend five hours tutorializing all the complex systems you're going to need for the remaining 50 hours, it's, you know, you can learn it in a minute and just mm -hmm. enjoy it for what it is. That's always the worst feeling when you when you know you have played and enjoyed a game immensely and you come back to it months later and you don't remember how yeah. to play it. You know, I don't, I can't do this anymore. I, mm -hmm. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Or if it's like a sequel and, um, it's like incredibly slow to start, or there's a ton of new mm. things to learn. It's like um, I know this, guys. Yeah, let me get you know, to the good part. I um, I, I was so excited for Final Fantasy 13 back when that came mm. out. Oh, yeah. I sat down with like all my friends from college, and like we got around the TV and played it for a few hours, and we just like lost steam so early, you know. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people had that experience. It's a shame. Sure, absolutely. All right, uh, moving on again uh, to the what third to last question. Mm -hmm. uh, you are making video games, which is awesome, but if you could do any other profession on the face of the earth, what would you want to give a shot? There's a lot of good answers to this one. Mm -hmm. Well, my hobby is baking bread, so I could be a baker. Okay, uh, but I don't that's think good. I don't think good. I don't think that would be too too satisfying. You know, maybe okay. because it's an election year, I'm like a real politico. I really follow this stuff. It'd be fun to be a congressman. I'm thinking that might be my second career once I'm done with games. Okay. You know? Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Don't, don't think less of me for that. 
I will not. Uh. <laughs> and there's also there's not a great precedent for game designers turning into congressmen, so I keep that but in mind you, too. But you could be the catalyst, though. That's the thing. Maybe yeah, there's, there's maybe no there's game. all these game designers that you know they they know game theory, they know how systems should work. Well, that's the thing. Like I, there are so many game designers who talk like that, who are who say like politics is a system, government is a system, like the electoral rules and stuff all have these weird effects that don't make sense. Could we not just like get together like as a big convention and write out some rules that make sense that will like actually lead to the outcomes that everybody says they want? But uh, it's like, hold on, guys, we're making a patch. Exactly. <laughs> I, I've actually I've seen like you know famous game designers I respect talking on Twitter about like, could we please patch you know American politics? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. And now the uh, second to last question. Uh, if there was any game that you could replay again for the first time, so seeing it with new eyes, uh, what game would you want to experience again anew? Okay. Um, so, my answer is Final Fantasy X, which is uh, the first Final Fantasy game that I actually played like all the way through. Um, but the caveat is... I, I couldn't play it as an adult. I have to play it as like a you know thirteen year old or whatever I was, because hmm. you know that was the age at which I could appreciate Final Fantasy for what it is and like really like have it hit me hard. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot watch it now. You know, that's like I don't know. It's I, I see some. I go on YouTube sometimes and I've like seen old you know cutscenes and stuff and. Just like it seems so bad, <laughs> you know. I, 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 if I was seeing that as an adult for the first time, it would be so bad. But if I could see it again, again as like a, you know, a kid, then that would be it. Nice. All right, and our last question: uh, When you come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom and Toad is there with the book of the deeds of your life, what do you want him to say to you before letting you in? Cool game, bro. I don't know which one he's talking about. Hopefully Orlux. <laughs> Hopefully Orlux Constellations. Coming soon to mobile. Available now on Steam. <laughs> nice. Way to, way to stick with the branding. Good job. Yeah. Tie it all back around. Indeed. Okay. All right, well, that does it. Congratulations, you survived. You danger. made it through. Do, do people not survive? Was that danger? No, no, everybody's always survived. Oh. We just, we like to congratulate people. Okay. Um, well, you know, I appreciate it. It, it, it can be a harrowing experience, but <laughs> no, no, nobody has died in the uh, the end game. so. Yet. Uh, that's, yet, that is true. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about uh, Orlux Constellations. E, if you could send us out by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more information about the game. Yes, uh, OraluxConstellations.com is your go-to site. That's A-U-R-A-L-U-X Constellations.com Alright, fantastic. Well, it is currently available on Steam and it'll be available soon for your mobile devices, so check that out and Thank you again so much for joining us, and good luck as you kind of, I guess, finish up development with uh, the mobile version and move on to brighter and shinier things. Cool. Thank you. 